The things that philosophers talk about can be divided into two categories, although no doubt there's a bit of a gray zone in between. The first category is things that pretty much only philosophers talk about, <laughs> such as the distinction between warrant and justification, or the distinction between being and beings, or the difference between implication and presupposition. Now, if you scarcely know what I mean by those examples, then I've chosen them well, you see. <laughs> the second category is things that non-philosophers already talk about, such as persons, or intentions, or political authority. Questions could, of course, be raised about this distinction. For example, are philosophers only topics, are those topics legitimate? Or when such a topic appears, does that reveal that philosophy has gone off the rails? If they are legitimate, are they legitimate for themselves? Or are they legitimate only insofar as they facilitate discussions of topics that aren't philosophy only? Questions like this are parts of larger questions, like the question of the relationship between philosophical thinking and other kinds of thinking, which is in turn a part of the still larger question of the relationship between philosophy and the rest of life. The topic of this present talk, causality or causation, is definitely one of the questions that philosophers do not have a monopoly on. Rightly or wrongly, ordinary people do think of the world as involving causation, causal networks. Things don't just happen. They are made to happen by other things. The window doesn't just break. It's broken by a tree branch in the wind or an errant baseball. The car didn't just crash. It crashed because the road was icy or because the driver was texting. As we say, things happen for a reason. There are many issues in the philosophy of causation, only some of which are relevant in this session. Here is what we'll be examining. First, the difference between the Aristotelian Thomist view and the Humean view. Second, a picky question about what's a cause and what's an effect. Third, the classic doctrine of the four causes. Fourth, how God might be said to be a cause. And finally, the difference between a causal explanation and an ultimate causal explanation. All of this will be important in its own right, but it's also important inasmuch as it paves the way for discussion later in the conference of arguments for the existence of God those arguments presuppose certain ideas about, you guessed it, causation. All right. The Aristotelian Thomistic view of causation as opposed to the Humean view. When I said I want to, to make this contrast between the Aristotelian or Thomist view of causation on the one hand, and the Humean view, I might have said instead that I want to contrast the Humean view with the Aristotelian scholastic view, broadening the scope beyond Aquinas to include all or most 
medieval philosophy professors. That's what a scholastic philosopher is, in a sense. But I also could have said Platonic, Aristotelian, scholastic. I could have said Platonic, Aristotelian, Plotinian, scholastic, Cartesian, and so on. The Humean view of causation is not the standard view. Almost everybody disagrees with it. On the other hand, it's very important and very influential. But what is the Humean view? One way to put it, a slightly misleading way, would be to say that for Hume, there's just no such thing as causation. Things don't happen for a reason. They just happen. The baseball moves to the window, and the window breaks. But the baseball didn't break the window. True, it's a very consistent pattern that when baseballs arrive at windows, windows break. But that's all it is, a consistent pattern, a pattern which Hume calls constant conjunction. Perhaps you've heard the, the slogan, correlation is not causation. Well, Hume thinks it is. Now, I said this is slightly misleading. It's misleading if it makes you think that Hume holds that we should stop saying that one thing causes another. It's misleading if you think that, that Hume holds that we should stop thinking like this. For Hume, we can't stop thinking like this. And for all intents and purposes, we can't stop saying it. We're just built this way. We're built to expect patterns to continue. When baseballs regularly break windows, we start to anticipate a window breakage when we see a baseball approach. And no amount of philosophy will ever change that. What philosophy contributes is the proper understanding of what this is all about. Our idea of causation isn't really derived from the baseball and the window. It's derived from our own felt anticipation of the breakage of the window. Ideas come from somewhere, according to Hume. This one, causation, doesn't come from the outside world. It comes from our own feeling of expectation. Here comes another broken window. So go ahead and say the baseball broke the window. Hume does it too. But do be aware, at least in your more philosophical moments, that this belief is as much a belief about your own habits of mind as it is a belief about baseballs. This is Hume's way of thinking about this. Aquinas, Scotus, Aristotle, Plato, and many others would all disagree strongly. They think that the world really does contain objective causal patterns and that our beliefs in such patterns are derived not from our own feeling that this will come next, but from what's really going on out there in the world. So that's the first point. From the Thomist perspective, causation is real. Now for the picky question. You might ask, what does the causing? When a baseball hits a window and the window breaks, should we say that the baseball is the cause and the broken window is the effect? That might sound obviously right, but actually there's an alternative 
Some philosophers like to speak of event causality. On this approach, it's better to say that the cause is the event of the baseballs hitting the window. And the effect is the event of the windows breaking. About this, I will say just two things. It's actually a big, complicated thing, and there's like an entire literature about this. First, for philosophers like Aquinas, agents can be causes. Even if there is some point to saying that what broke the window was the event of the ball striking it, the more basic truth is that the ball struck the window and thereby broke it. This can be called agent causation, <clears throat> as long as we are willing to use the word agent broadly, so as to include not just rational agents, but also non-rational agents, like baseballs. Second, for philosophers like Aquinas, not all causality is performed by agents. Sometimes causation is performed, if that's the right word, by, by um, like aspects of agents, by what we might call causal explanatory factors. But to say that is just to segue into the next topic. So let me start talking about the four causes. Aristotle's famous doctrine of the four causes. Following Aristotle, <clears throat> Aquinas has the idea that there are mainly four types of cause. Some of their names are pretty confusing. And just using the word cause in this connection is confusing in itself. <clears throat> because what Aquinas calls a causa in Latin, right? Obviously, he doesn't call anything a cause because he never writes anything in English. Um, what Aquinas calls a causa is broader than what we call a cause in contemporary English. In our language, it might be better to talk about an, an objective explanatory factor. But on the other hand, that's not very snappy, is it? So let's walk through some examples. Consider a football. I could ask you why it smells so nice, and your answer would be that it's made of leather. <clears throat> I could ask you why it bounces so funny, and your answer would be that it's a prolate spheroid. <laughs> I could ask you how it came to exist at all, and your answer might be that it was made by a football maker at Wilson Sporting Goods. I could ask you what it was for, and you could say it was for playing the game of football. In each of these cases, I asked you a question, and you answered by pointing to an explanatory factor. The leather is what the football is made out of, and that is an explanation of its smell. It's a factor that explains some truths about the football. The shape is how the leather is configured or arranged, and that's an explanation of how it bounces. It's a factor that explains some truths about the football. And likewise, <coughs> although in different ways for the other explanatory factors, the factory workers are the explanation of how the leather came to take on that shape, and the game of football itself demands that the ball have a certain shape. These are explanatory factors then, and they are not explanatory merely in the sense that they might play a role in someone's thinking, in someone's attempt to find an explanation, these factors really do account for the facts in question, 
They are explanatory factors in this more objective sense, in a sense that holds good regardless of our thinking about it. So they are objective explanatory factors, or what a Thomist would call a cause. Now, as I've mentioned already, in contemporary English, we might be reluctant to use the word cause in every one of these senses, in every one of these cases. Obviously, we would have no problem calling the employees of Wilson Sporting Goods causes. And sometimes we call the purpose of something a cause. We say that someone is fighting for a good cause, for example. But it might sound less natural to say that the material that something is made out of, or its shape, is a cause. If it sounds funny, well, you'll get used to it. But don't become so used to it that you forget that it sounds funny to non-Aristotelians, because then you'll have trouble communicating with them. <laughs> These four causes are what Aristotelians call the four causes. Here now is a more general presentation, albeit a somewhat misleading one. What something is made up of, the material it's made out of, is called the material cause. The material cause. The shape something has is its formal cause. Formal cause. The agent that brings it into being is the efficient cause. Efficient cause. That name is not meant to suggest getting things done quickly and with a minimum of waste. Instead, it comes from a Latin word that means to do or to make. So it's the cause that gets it done. Finally, the goal or end for the sake of which something comes into being is called the final cause. Final cause. Inasmuch as the goal is the final stage of a pro process. Um, so again, material cause, formal cause, efficient cause, final cause. And can I tell a funny little story? When I was in the first philosophy class I ever had, the, um, the professor was presenting this. And when he got to efficient cause, somebody raised his hand and said, like, what? Efficient? Like, it just sounds so weird, you know? And the professor just looked at him and said, did you do the reading? And the kid said, no. And the professor just turned away and went on with the lecture. <laughs> as if the kid didn't even exist. It was amazing to see. <laughs> now, I warn you, I almost said who it was into the tape, but I won't. <laughs> I'm sure he's proud of it, though. <laughs> now, I warn you that this is somewhat misleading. Let me explain how. The example I gave, which is modeled pretty closely on Aristotle's own example of a bronze statue. This is an example of a man-made entity, an artifact. From the metaphysical point of view, an artifact isn't a very deep kind of being. It's hardly more than an arrangement of other beings. I don't know, maybe it's best just to say that leather is a real thing and a football is nothing more than leather in a certain shape. It might be best to say that bronze is a real thing, and a statue is nothing more than bronze in a certain shape. 
Maybe that's going too far, but if you can see why that's tempting, then you can see why somebody would be inclined to think that artifacts are not very solid or they're not a very deep kind of being. I don't know. The topic of the metaphysical status of artifacts is actually a really difficult one. I'll say what I've said like 12 times already today. I'm not going to get into that here. But I'm saying this mostly because I want to point out that talking about artifacts is really, for us, it's just a way of getting started on thinking about the four causes. The four causes as they exist not in the world of man-made objects, but in the world of natural objects. A football has four causes, but so does a cat. And it's the cat that we really want to focus on. And I should add, not caring about the difference between artifacts and natural objects is extremely common in contemporary philosophy. And in my opinion, it leads to a lot of mistakes. Um, if you want to give the same account for both, you have to earn that. You can't just take it for granted. Okay, let's start out by trying to think about the cat on the model of the football. First, its material cause would be cat flesh or cat organs or cat cells. Its formal cause would be the arrangement of this flesh, of these organs or cells. Its efficient cause would be the parent cats that, bought it, that brought it into being. And its final cause would be, I don't know, what is the purpose of a cat? I don't mean that in the snarky anti-cat sense. I mean just like, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I just tried to give a fourfold explanation of a cat that was modeled on the fourfold explanation of the football. One of these four explanations, one of the four causes, makes very good sense, namely the efficient cause. It does sound right to say that the parental cats are what brought the cat into being. But one of these four explanations turned out to be highly problematic namely the final cause, it's fairly unclear what it might mean to talk about the purpose or end of a cat. And there are problems with the other two causes as well, because it's really not true that a cat is an arrangement of cat cells. At least, it doesn't come to be as an arrangement of cat cells. It's not the case that we begin with cat cells and then some agent arranges them into a cat. That's the Frankenstein model of how living things come to be. You start with parts that are already human or already feline, and then you put them together. But that's not what happens in real life actual reality. What happens in real life actual reality is that a cat comes into being as something that is already a one-celled cat. The existence of cat cells doesn't precede the existence of the cat. It coincides with it. So the case of the cat is different from the case of the football. In the case of the football, you have something that is not a football, some leather, and then you arrange it in such a way that what you have is what we call a football. But in the case of the cat, you don't start with something that is not a cat, namely some cells, and then arrange them into a cat. Something comes into being, namely a cat, and it has cat cells, but those cat cells don't precede the cat as the stuff that a cat is constructed out of. So this is part of what's at stake in talking about substantial change, which I mentioned last time. 
So what this shows is that we need to deviate from the football model. The situation of the cat is similar to the football, but also different. A cat is a thing, a substance. Its essence is to be a cat, to be feline. That essence, you might say, has two aspects, a material aspect and a formal aspect. The material aspect ensures that it is a corporeal entity that is capable of being acted upon by other corporeal entities. The formal aspect ensures that it is an entity of a certain type, in this case, feline. What's more, the formal aspect dominates over the material aspect, making it be the case that the cat doesn't just have some matter, but some matter of a specific sort, namely catness. The catness of the cat's matter isn't something the cat form accepts and deals with, the way the football shape accepts and deals with the leatheriness of the football's matter. The catness of the cat's matter is derived from, accounted for, by the cat form. Again, that's very different from the case of the football. The leatheriness of the matter is not derived from the football's form, which is only a shape. What about the final cause? What is the goal of a cat? I think a Thomist could give two answers, two answers that are meant to be consistent with one another. I'll give the first answer here and the second answer in the next section of this talk. The first answer is that the end or goal or final cause of a cat is to be cat is to be cat-like, to be feline. A cat living out a feline life, purring, killing mice, making baby cats, that is the goal of cat existence. A cat's goal is to be the best cat it can be. Not, of course, that cats have this in mind as their intention. The idea instead is that there's a difference between being an awesome cat and being a mediocre cat. And the goal of cathood is to be awesome. <laughs> I mean, it is. This goal of awesome catitude <laughs> is a cause in the sense that it explains why cats are the way they are. Cats have claws so they can kill mice. Indeed, Aquinas says that the final cause is the cause of causes. In order that a cat-like life be lived, cats need to have certain kinds of cells and organs. Cat parents bring baby cats into existence so that new feline lives may be lived. Now again, it's not like the cat parents are thinking, hey, let's act so that new feline lives may be lived. But if the cats mate and new feline lives come into being, sorry, if the cats mate and no new feline lives come into being, or if the feline lives come into being but they are defective feline lives, then the cat mating procedures did not work out as well as they could have. They didn't attain their final goal, or at least not in the fullest way. So here's where we are so far. The efficient cause of a natural object 
is probably what you're already thinking, the parents of the cat or whatever. The form and matter, however, are more intimately bound up with one another than the football example suggests. In the case of a natural entity, the form is an inner explanatory principle that not only arranges the matter, but makes the matter to be the kind of matter that it is. The cat's form not only arranges the cat cells, it's responsible for the existence of cat cells in the first place. And the final cause is the full flourishing of the entity in question as an entity of its kind. Now, I want to say a few words about how the idea of causation connects to the idea of act and potency, which is what we talked about, one of the things we talked about in the last session. Generally speaking, when causation happens, that's because a potency gets actualized. So, for example, a fence has the potentiality to be green, and then the painter actualizes that potency by painting it so that it's actually green. Also, the painter himself had a potentiality, a potentiality to paint, which he then actualized. And interestingly, the actualization of the painter's potentiality to be a painter coincides with the actualization of the fence's potentiality to get painted. The potential cause becomes an actual cause precisely inasmuch as the potential effect becomes an actual effect. This point is going to come up below in a somewhat different way. Now let me add a complication. Normally, potentialities piggyback on actualities. In order to be potentially green, the fence has to already exist in actuality. In order to be potentially a painter, the person has to already exist in actuality. But there are cases of actuality where the connection between there are cases where the connection between potentiality and actuality is a little harder to see. First, consider substantial changes, which we discussed last in the last uh, session. It's not the case that something, something, starts out with the potentiality to be a cat and then keeps existing while actualizing that potentiality. Instead, something starts out with a potentiality to pass out of existence and be replaced by or succeeded by a cat. So here, potentiality is rooted in actuality, but it's rooted in an actuality that passes away. Second, although we've not gotten to God officially yet in these lectures, I'm sure you've all at least heard of the concept, um, we say that God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. So when God creates the world, there's nothing out there that has the potentiality to be turned into something. Okay, so when you say that God creates the world out of nothing, you don't mean that nothing is like a thing and then that God does something to it. That makes no sense, right? Nothing isn't a, a thing. It's not even a weak, dark, flabby sort of thing. It's nothing. So here's a case, I mean, it's, it's even, I mean, even just saying that sounds wrong. It's not like it is nothing. It's not like an it that has the property of being nothing. 
So here's a case where some causal event happens, but it doesn't build on any pre-existing potentiality. When you and I make things, we start with raw materials, but God doesn't have to do that. Okay, let's shift gears a bit and ask how this fourfold causal schema compares with modern science. It's a tricky question. I mean, I think if you're, if you're a Thomist, I think you might say that this is one of the big, the top questions of philosophy for the last, I don't know, 400 years. I'm being totally serious when I say that. More than 400. Um, no, about 400. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it's a tricky question, okay? To a first approximation, it seems right to say that modern science is uninterested in final causes and interested in the other causes only insofar as they can be described mathematically. This might mean that there are things that modern science can't explain, and that's perfectly fine as long as we don't expect modern science to be able to explain everything. As long as we aren't claiming that modern science can explain everything, the fact that there are things it can't explain is not a problem. On the other hand, if you do claim that it can explain everything, then you have to worry about these things. Okay, there are two other... There, I want to complicate what I've said so far in two ways. The first is this. Maybe modern science is not quite so far from Aristotelianism insofar as final causation comes into play. This is a, um, a difficulty that has to do with philosophy of biology. So in theory, pretty much everyone says that in modern science, final causation has no role to play. If you just grab philosophers of biology and ask them, are final causes okay? They're going to either say no or they're going to say yes, but then give you an account of final causation that tries to thin it out as much as possible. A lot of them will do that. On the other hand, it's not that easy to carry out this project in actual biology. It's not easy to talk about wings without saying that birds have wings so they can fly. Now, what we sometimes hear is that such talk is a kind of unavoidable shorthand for now, but that someday when the theory is complete, we won't need it anymore. We've been waiting for someday for a long time now, you can be forgiven for wondering whether it ever will. I raise this issue not to settle it. This is a very difficult and important question in the philosophy of biology. But I'm just trying to make you aware of it. This is something that really needs thinking about. The other complication is this. Maybe we shouldn't think of modern science as giving us causes at all, at least not all the time, but sometimes of just giving us correlations. For example, think of Boyle's law. It says that the pressure of a gas in a container is inversely proportional to the volume of the container. Assuming, yeah, I said that right. Assuming we hold constant the amount of the gas and its temperature. So this law shows that two quantities are related in a certain predictable way. But does it give us causation? Maybe not. So maybe at least sometimes modern science isn't about causation at all. I don't see why that would be a problem, by the way. It's not a criticism. So I've mentioned a few ways in which modern scientific understandings might vary from the Aristotelian causal scheme. I haven't done that to make either approach look bad. Maybe they're just different. Maybe they ask different questions. 
And so that there's, so there's no incompatibility to worry about. However, there is a further question that is more of a challenge. This has already come up. The easiest way to bring it out is by going back to something I said earlier. You don't get a cat by starting with something that isn't a cat and then arranging it to the point where you get a cat. I mentioned a specific something that isn't a cat, namely a set of cat cells. I said you don't start with a bunch of cat cells and then arrange them into a cat. But what if I had used a different example? What if instead of saying cat cells, I had said atoms? Couldn't it be the case that a cat comes to be not by the arrangement of cat cells, but by the arrangement of atoms? It would go like this. You have a bunch of atoms, and they make up a cat ovum and cat sperm. Then you rearrange those atoms, and now you have a tiny one-celled cat. So the atoms are the matter, and what makes them a cat is their arrangement. On this way of thinking, the football example isn't so far off, after all. Except, of course, that in the case of the cat, what we're calling an arrangement isn't just a question of shape. It's, there's mu it's really a question of much more, causal, uh, much more complicated causal interactions. What would Aquinas say about this? Would he allow that atoms pre-exist the cat and are rearranged to result in a cat? This is a very difficult issue to work out in detail, but the short answer is no. Aquinas would not say that. He would say that those atoms pass out of existence and that every bit of the cat is a cat bit all the way down, no matter how tiny you slice. Even the things that seem like atoms or electrons or whatever are, in fact, cat bits, bits of cat, feline parts, pieces. Is Aquinas crazy? Or, to be a bit nicer, is he just ignorant of the things that we now know through the sciences of chemistry and physics? I used to worry about that, and to some extent I still do. Okay, actually I do a lot. But <laughs> the truth is that this is a difficult issue. Um, and when you talk to people, I said this last time, when you talk to people who know this stuff really well on a high level, um, you start to think that it's not so obvious that the atoms are really in there, right? Again, when atoms or electrons or whatever enter into chemical combinations, serious changes takes pl take place, right? Hydrogen atom, hydrogen and oxygen, they combine to form water. The result is something very different from either hydrogen or oxygen. So perhaps we shouldn't be quite so quick to just say, yeah, hydrogen and oxygen are still there in the water. I'm not trying to settle this issue here, but only to bring it up so you won't get blindsided by it. Aquinas definitely wouldn't say that a cat is merely an arrangement of atoms. That would make a cat basically just like an artifact, a fancy, complicated football. If he were here today, I think he would have to choose between two things. He could stick to his hardcore position. He could stick to what I just said. 
and then say that there's no part of the cat that is not essentially feline. And that would mean that he'd have to stick to the view that the atoms and such have passed away. And then, of course, he would owe us an account, a sort of account of what modern science says that makes sense out of modern science. He couldn't just roll his eyes and go, oh, well, that's like science. But I'm a, I'm a philosopher, right? You can't do that. That's not an answer. I, so that's one approach that he might take. Um, the other thing he would do is he might say, okay, what I said back then in the 1260s, that wasn't right. The atoms really are there. However, it's still not just an arrangement. And then he would have to come up with some other kind of account that would make it different from merely an arrangement. We don't really know what that second kind of account would look like. Um, but it would be needed because for Aquinas, a substance, well, I said this in, uh, earlier, it's a unified whole. And the unity has to be very strong. An arrangement of independent things is not enough, even a super complicated fancy arrangement. If you say, well, it's all right because it's a very complicated arrangement, that doesn't help even a little bit. The degree of complexity doesn't help. As I said, the big problem of philosophy for the last 400 years. All right, so we've talked about Aquinas versus Hume. We've done the picky question. We've talked about the four causes. Now let's talk about God being the cause. I mean, again, it's sort of premature to bring this up because we haven't actually put God into the talks. Um, but I do want to make a few small remarks to set the stage for later. And this is building on what I already mentioned about creation ex nihilo. First and obviously, Aquinas would call God the cause of every creature in the sense that God is the efficient cause of every creature. He brings it into being. Second, Aquinas would also say that God is the final cause of every creature. Every creature has God and God's glory as its proper goal, as the proper goal of that creature. Third, he would say that God is the exemplar cause. Now, that's not on our fourfold list. Um, meaning that God is, so to speak, what each creature is modeled after. It's like an example or exemplar. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that every creature is just like God. For one thing, every creature falls very short of God. For another thing, creatures imitate God in various ways, differently from each other. And that latter point means, now let's go back to the thought of God as a final cause, that while each creature, in a sense, has the divine glory as its goal, each creature has as its goal a different aspect of the divine glory. And in fact, this is Aquinas' explanation of why there is diversity in creation, so that God's glory could be represented in as many ways as possible. I mean, the reason you exist is because you represent an aspect of God's glory that no one else does. 
So that's like this thing that you can do that nobody else can do just by being you, especially doing a good job of it. I mean, I don't want to put pressure on you, but... <laughs> the glory of God, that's what it's about. Okay, there's a lot packed into what I just said. Actually, maybe I do want to put pressure on you. <laughs> it depends on your frame of mind. You know, In a certain frame of mind, you don't want to put pressure on people. You'll just break them. But other times, they need it. So, Okay, some of this will come up in a more complicated form in subsequent talks. But right now, I just want to say one more thing. It's the makings of a second answer. Remember I said the final cause? There's two answers. Um... A cat's goal can be seen as the imitation of God. That's the second kind of answer. In a certain specifically feline way. So the purpose of a cat is not just to live in a cat-like way, but it's also to give glory to God by living in a cat-like way. By purring, springing, and so forth. And this theological answer is, more, is consistent with the first one. The first one says that the purpose of a cat is to live in a beautifully feline way, the second answer is that the purpose of a cat is to glorify God by living in a perfectly, beautifully feline way. So the cat doesn't have to choose between being gloriously feline and glorifying God. For a cat, they're the same. All right. Now I want to finish with a remark about causal explanations and ultimate causal explanations. The search for knowledge is a search for answers to why questions a search for explanatory factors or causes. When we find a causal explanation for something, we know why it is the way it is. You'd think that when we know this, our search would be over, but it's not that simple. That's because it's possible to have an explanation that isn't an ultimate explanation. And the real goal isn't just explanation, but ultimate explanation. What I have in mind is this. When you explain why something is, you point to its cause, but often enough, it's possible to ask a further why question, a why question about that cause. You explain one thing in terms of a second thing, but then you seek an explanation of that second thing. When this happens, it shows that the original explanation, although it was a genuine explanation, isn't an explanation that brings questioning to a conclusion. Imagine you are standing in a cafeteria line and you get shoved from behind. You turn around and see that Tom shoved you. When you see that it's Tom, then in a sense, you know why you got shoved. But then again, suppose that Tom shoved you only because he had been shoved against you by someone else. Tom shoved you but he was a shoved shover. You will probably want to know why Tom got shoved. And what you really want to know is who shoved first? Who started it? Who was the unshoved shover? Or if there isn't a first unshoved shover, is there maybe an earthquake? In one way or another, until you know who or what started it all, you won't fully know what happened. Or consider the following analogy. Suppose you are selling a car to Dave. You give Dave the car, and he says you can count on him for the money. 
because Sally is going to be paying him very soon. You want to be sure, so you call Sally, and she says that you can count on her to give Dave the money, because Mary is going to be paying her very soon. You want to be sure, so you call Mary, and she says, well, you get the point. Each of these people is good for the money, but only if someone else is good for the money. That's fine, but what you really want to know is whether there is someone back there who actually has the money. If not, you just gave your car away. This is like causal explanation in the following fashion. These people who are going to pay can do so only if someone pays them. In a similar way, there are causes that can do their causing only if something causes them. If real payment is going to happen, there has to be someone who doesn't need to receive money, but who just has it. In a somewhat similar way, if real causation is going to happen, there has to be something that doesn't need to be caused, but can just be a cause all on its own. There's nothing wrong with the fact that causes often need their own causes. But at some point, you need something that isn't a caused cause, but an uncaused cause. I bet you can see the relevance of this to the overall theme of our conference. If you can't, well, wait for a few more lectures. Okay, so in this session, we have seen how Aquinas takes causation very seriously in a non-Humean way. And we have focused a lot on the doctrine of the four causes and on the issue of ultimate causal explanation. The material is important in itself, but it will also figure into discussions of the existence of God a few sessions from now. Thank you. And this will, I hope, pay off tomorrow. <laughs> That's it. Thank you.